Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Over the weekend, we published Zapruder Part 1, and today's episode is Zapruder Part 2. Part 1 was a bit of a teaser, and we really get into it in Part 2 today. Parts 3 and 4 are coming out as well in the next couple of days. And those episodes will add even more interesting drama around the Zapruder film and some more of the forensics. This has been a really exciting component of the series for me to do, as it is a major part of the assassination story. Incredibly fascinating, and it's central to so much of the actual case against the shooter or shooters themselves. Oh, and if you haven't noticed this already, this is my longest episode yet, and much longer than most, about 50 minutes long. No offense taken if you have to listen to it in doses, but maybe you won't be able to put it down either. I'm hoping it's the latter. You know, the podcast format is such a good one in so many ways, but if there ever was a section of this series that I wish we could have a video on, well, it's this part. In the past couple of episodes, I've used the adopted cliche, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then this film is priceless to the assassination analysis. The Zapruder film is widely available, and you can see it from reputable sources on the internet. I would urge you to watch it, and likely, if you're listening to this podcast, most of you have already seen it at one time or another. Keep in mind, it is a gruesome depiction of the horrible act of assassination. The gruesomeness of it only serves to underscore the heinous nature of this crime. And also keep in mind that today, I will be discussing some things in graphic detail. To top it off, the Zapruder film is, of course, a silent one, so I can't even play any part of it as an audio clip on the podcast. Oh well. For now, you're just going to have to be happy with my storytelling approach to it all, as limited as that may be. One of the most astonishing aspects about the Zapruder film is that it was an incredible piece of evidence, and yet, almost immediately, it became a highly desirable piece of commercial property. Zapruder knew that the authenticity of the film would be dependent on a clear chain of custody. That aspect of its handling would be an important matter for a number of reasons, as Abraham Zapruder also knew that he had an important piece of evidence on his hands. So he set out very quickly, in a very deliberate way, to have the film processed and to preserve the chain of possession in a way that would withstand the rigor that he knew was inevitable. Rigor that he knew would be part of the natural forces that would bear down on such a thing in the midst of an assassination circumstance. It was an insightful moment of clarity by Zapruder. The film itself is 486 individual frames in length. As I mentioned to you in episode 9, we all know that a movie is a collection of still frames moving at a rapid rate to fool the eyes into believing that they are seeing one continuous motion. Zapruder's Bell and Howe camera recorded images on film at approximately 18.3 frames per second. This is an important number to remember in your head because we are going to use that number, 18.3, a bunch, just a little later as we use the film and its frame number references to establish exacting time frames between events 
that are critical to the forensic analysis. This gets a little tedious, but try to stay with it as we navigate a complex technical discussion. So, to start out, dividing 486 total frames by the camera's record and capture rate of 18.3 frames per second yields a total time of approximately 26.6 seconds for the entire film. It's not long, but it's incredibly powerful. Aside from giving us the graphic pictures of the act itself, the real gift of the Zapruder film is that it gave us a timeline of exactly what happened for those few seconds when the shots rang out. It allowed investigators and then later on researchers to critically evaluate what happened and when in the shooting sequence. Basically, the entire sequence of events could be broken down frame by frame in roughly one eighteenth of a second increments for each frame with a distinct picture at each of those moments. Because so much of the other forensics involving the Kennedy autopsy and the shooter's rifle became suspect, this irrefutable portion of the evidence gave everyone at least one source of truth to anchor to. A piece of evidence that didn't lie that didn't have to be evaluated for whether they were telling the truth or got the recollection wrong or that there was no chain of custody for. While it didn't photograph anyone taking the actual shot, it was real and it was irrefutable. Some researchers felt that getting clarity out of the rest of the evidence pool was like trying to get cooked spaghetti to stand up straight. It just was not going to happen. In some ways then, the Zapruder film took on more responsibility than it should have as the central element of evidence in this case. Lawyers at the Warren Commission could not ignore the apparent hard truths staring them in the face regarding the precise timeline. And likewise, conspiracy theorists over time were determined to make the timing problems associated with the multiple rifle shots and the controversy of the headshot visual into prima facie evidence that a conspiracy existed. Both views brought complications. The study of the Zapruder film has spawned its own particular vernacular. Professionals viewing the film began to refer to any one particular frame or frames in the movie by placing a Z in front of the frame number or numbers. So, for instance, Z133 represents the reference to the 133rd frame in the film. The most famous frame is, of course, frame 313. It is the frame which shows unequivocally the explosion that occurred on the president's head. More particularly, frame Z312 and Z313 are essentially the explosion frames, showing the president just before and as of the moment of the explosion. It is the source of much controversy that we are continuing to talk about in this series of episodes on the Zapruder film. The controversy, of course, surrounds the question of whether or not the shots came from the back or the front, and particularly the final headshot. More on that before we are done, but not right at the moment. So what does the film show? First, for just a second, let's revel in the beauty and the pageantry that was that moment as they were reaching the end of the parade route at the end of Main Street 
and as they were making their way into Dealey Plaza. Our handsome president and his beautiful wife beside him. This young-looking and vibrant man that was the paramount symbol of a new age of Camelot in America, and here today with one of the most elegant first ladies the country had ever seen. Jackie, in a rather stunning pink outfit and pillbox hat, an outfit that would, in just a matter of minutes, become soaked with her own husband's blood. She would later refuse to change as they made their way from Parkland Hospital to Air Force One and finally exit the plane back in Washington. She said no. Let the whole world see what they have done to Jack. But in that moment, that moment in the plaza, as they came to the end of the parade route, the loud and beautiful roar of the crowds must have overcome any thoughts the Kennedys may have had about the pockets of hate that were surely present in Dallas for the president. The Conleys, who were both in the same limousine, in the front seats and just ahead of the Kennedys, felt and saw the admiration too. The admiration that was coming from the home crowd. And they were proud of it. Pleased at what was unfolding that day in Dallas, Nellie Conley, moments before they entered Dealey Plaza, turned and said to Mr. Kennedy, You can't say Dallas doesn't love you, Mr. President. That statement is but one more irony in this Shakespearean drama that is the Kennedy assassination story. Well now, let's turn to the film itself and let me break the film down based on what happens in each important section of this 26-second film. Notice how I tell this story based on frame numbers. The frame numbers are a precise roadmap related to the timetable of events and the precision is important in sorting out critical elements of the forensic evidence, as you'll soon find out. In frames Z1 to Z132, the three lead police motorcycles turn onto Elm Street from Houston Street and begin to head down Elm leading the way on the final portion of the downtown parade before the motorcade eventually makes its own way under the triple underpass and onto the Stemmons Freeway. You may recall that in episode 9, I mentioned that Zapruder knew he wasn't shooting that day with a full roll of film. He had previously filmed his grandchildren at play and knew that some of the roll had already been used. Whether it was for that reason or Abraham's natural economy of use, he stopped filming for a moment after he initially used the first few seconds of film to capture the advanced motorcycles. Evidently, he was waiting for the main motorcade components to come into good view on Elm, and so he waited patiently to start shooting film again. Shortly, the president's limousine got to the corner of Houston and Elm and made the turn, and there Zapruder began filming again. Beginning with frame Z133, the president's limousine comes back directly into view right next to the school book depository. In frames Z133 through Z153, the president can be seen waving his right hand to the crowd as the limousine progresses down Elm Street. And that basically continues in frames Z154 to Z188, with a similar hand wave made with his right hand. 
Around frame Z189, it appears as if the president begins to hold his right hand higher, perhaps as if something was going wrong already. By frame Z198, President Kennedy's hands are at his throat level, and by frame Z202, his wife Jackie turns and begins to look directly at the president. At about this moment, the presidential limousine reaches a position on Elm Street that is out of view of the Zapruder camera. A very large road sign, rectangular in shape, the kind that would have a size and a shape that you might see on the interstate, completely engulfs the direct view between where Zapruder was filming and where the limousine was now located on Elm Street. Frame 206 is the last frame in which you barely see the top of the president's head before his image and the rest of the limousine becomes lost behind the road sign. There is a series of frames right after the limousine passes in the path of the sign that actually were damaged or missing from the original film. Frames 207 to 212 were damaged and along with that frame 208 and 209 are now missing from the original film. This is one of the few items of this nature related to the condition of the film that conspiracy theorists have not blown out of proportion. Their absence would likely shed no light on anything as the view of the camera was blocked at that moment. Probably the only important corollary on these two lost frames is that they represent two frames of lost time in the sequence. So if we do the math, 2 divided by 18.3 frames per second converts roughly to a missing time of approximately one-tenth of a second in the timeline. Not critical at all to any conclusion, but part of the time accounting around all of this. More importantly, the Warren Commission report states that the firing sequence had to have begun at a point not later than frame Z210, essentially right at the moment that the president becomes hidden behind the sign in the film and the shooting sequence is then completed at frame Z313 with the final shot occurring to the president's head. Remember this point as it becomes important and I'm going to come back to it. Let's do the math together. Subtracting frame Z210 from frame Z313 yields 103 frames. That's the frame count from when he emerged from the sign to when the final headshot occurred. Converting this time is rather easy. Dividing 103 frames by a frame rate of 18.3 frames per second yields 5.6 seconds. And that is the minimum time that the Warren Commission attributed to the entire firing sequence related to the three bullets in their scenario. Unfortunately, that minimum time began to be interpreted by critics as just the time attributed to the shooting sequence. And there were definite problems with the idea that even an experienced shooter could get off three accurate shots in a 5.6 second time frame from a cheap Italian surplus bolt action rifle with a scope that was loose. But for that moment, you will see the 5.6 seconds is an interesting and actually somewhat convenient math that the Warren Commission backed into when considering what they thought would be an accepted and reasonable time lapse between the three shots 
and also solve the issue of not taking the first shot until the motorcade had cleared the obstruction of a live oak tree. I'll say more about the tree in a minute. Remember, the rifle used was not an automatic rifle of any kind. Using a bolt-action rifle, you take the first shot and then work the bolt to discharge the spent casing, and then ready the chamber with another live round, and then reposition the rifle so that your eye has a clear view through the scope, in this case on a moving object, and it's only then that you can re-aim and finalize the target. A target that in this case was moving around 11 miles per hour, by the way, and then finally pull the trigger. Obviously, if you're an experienced shooter, this happens quicker for you than for others, and practice is critical to obtaining and maintaining this skill and garnering the ability to fire more rapidly and with sufficient accuracy. All of this was an especially important consideration in assessing the probability of hitting this target especially because the weapon was said to be a bolt-action rifle with all of its complications when firing multiple shots, as I have just now noted. But the point is, for anyone, even a trained professional, that's a lot to get done in a couple of seconds. Undoubtedly, without even thinking about it, one would have to be highly skilled to even get a shot off in that time frame, let alone an accurate one. But I digress. So let's get back to the math that the Zapruder film so unflinchingly hands us. If the Warren Commission says that the first bullet hit at around frame 210 and the whole sequence was 5.6 seconds, then a perfect split of time between shot number one and shot number three would place shot number two at 2.8 seconds in between all while performing the sequence of steps that I just described. Or, in other words, after shot one, you would have 2.8 seconds to reload and re-aim and take shot number two. And then you would repeat the same process and again have no more than 2.8 seconds after shot two to fire shot number three. So basically, if all three shots were equally spaced, then you would need to be able to consistently reload and re-aim and hit the target twice, or maybe all three times, in only 2.8 seconds each time using a rather poor bolt-action rifle. Now, in an earlier episode, you hear that many credible witnesses thought that the first shot came and then there was a pause, and then the second and third shots came with much more rapidity between each other. We are not even considering that complication yet. We don't have a pow, pow, pow kind of circumstance. We're really just saying pow, pow, pow. If you follow the Warren Commission's carefully laid out premise, the shot happened no later than frame Z210. For a moment, let's definitely assume it's Z210, and the next shot, if calculated consistent with the preceding math, would have to happen 2.8 seconds later. So, 2.8 seconds equals about 51 frames, and thus the second shot would be placed at around Z261. 
conveniently located just around where the Warren Commission placed it. It was a math that, if you believe, 2.8 seconds to reload and reshoot conveniently works for the Warren Commission when working backwards from the clear last shot timestamp at Z313. And so it fits into the realm of possibility. It starts the shooting sequence after the shooter has a clear view of the target and importantly, after the limousine clears the live oak tree and then completes a three-shot shooting sequence within 5.6 seconds, culminating with a clear timestamp of the final headshot that killed President Kennedy. This is important for a couple of reasons, and I keep restating it in a couple of different ways because it's complicated. First of all, we haven't talked at all yet about the Manlicker Carcano rifle that has been served up as the murder weapon by the Warren Commission. It was not an automatic rifle. It was instead a bolt-action rifle. How fast it could fire, and even more important, how fast it fired with any degree of accuracy, is of considerable controversy. We will get to all of that before we finish the discussion on the relevant forensics of the rifle. But the point of it all at this stage is that the Warren Commission decided that they wanted you to believe that Oswald, acting alone, delivered three shots in 5.6 seconds or thereabouts from that rifle, hitting at least twice and leaving it open that perhaps all three shots hit their mark. And that was the official position of the Warren Commission. Even if we are kind to the Warren Commission report and apply a little common sense here, the story doesn't get too much better. Let's say that it was an easy assumption to believe that the president was showing distress as early as frame Z189, that frame when his hands began to rise. For a moment, we are going to avoid the complication of whether the shooter would be precluded from taking the shot at Z189 because of the live oak tree obstruction. Let's assume that was not a problem for him. Now, let's do the math again. Hope you are getting good at it by now. Z189 is the point of first potential distress shown in the president's face a likely spot that marked the first bullet that hit. So let's subtract that from Z210. Well, that provides another 21 frames. 21 frames divided by 18.3 frames per second yields an incremental 1.15 seconds. That's 1.15 seconds earlier that the shooting sequence could have started, bringing the whole shooting sequence now to roughly 6.8 seconds. 6.8 seconds between the first shot and the final shot to the head. So let's check our math one more time so that we can give the commission credit for an extra 1.15 seconds. So the whole firing sequence is now from Z189 to Z313. That is 124 frames. Then again, simply divide by 18.3 frames per second and you come up with 6.8 seconds. So yes, the math checks. But, and this is a big but, it's still only 6.8 seconds. The Warren Commission certainly left itself a little room when they stated 
that the firing probably started no later than Z210. Little did they know at that moment that criticism would soon be heaped on them over the idea of getting off at least two accurate shots in the span of 5.6 seconds and three shots in total at that distance and delivering them to a target moving at about 11 miles per hour, the speed of the limousine. And further, delivered by a mediocre shooter at that, a shooter whose last recorded score in the Marines was only one point above the lowest tier of achievement as a designated shooter. Oswald achieved a marksman status, but far from the more accurate sharpshooter or expert designations that better performing shooters would carry on the official designated scale that the Marines used to evaluate how good of a shot you really were. Could he have gotten better with practice after he left the Marines? Sure. And in fairness, he had achieved a slightly higher score, but still only a marksman, in his only other recorded shooting score while he was in the Marines. He was never on record as being a great shot. But on the other hand, he was not a bad shot either. He had a marksman designation. Remember, we are dealing with probabilities here, and no one can speculate whether he was good enough or not. You know the old saying, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Yes, it's possible, but you yourself, the jury, have to weigh all these possibilities. This is the gray of the world we are living in for this case. Later, I am going to introduce to you the recreation of the shooting scene so that we can gain more insight as a member of our mock jury. Most of us are not experts with guns, and clearly we need to hear more about how hard this task really is and how often others, albeit obviously not under the pressure of trying to shoot the president in a real-life situation, but other professionals simply trying to recreate the success or failure of a similar shot with a similar rifle. Most of us are not experts with guns, and clearly we need to hear more about how hard this task really is and how often others are successful. If you yourself had gone to Dealey Plaza on November 22, 1963, or somewhere soon thereafter, and you scurried up the entrance at the Texas School Book Depository and then made your way over to the southeast corner of the building on the sixth floor, where the supposed shot came from, well, the first thing that would strike you as you look down out of that window is that there must have been an absolutely easier opportunity to shoot at the president from that window. That is, shoot at him straight on when the limousine was coming down Houston Street. After all, the president had just made the turn off of Maine, and that turn was a typical 90-degree right turn. Not quite as sweeping as the next one on the elm. Both turns involved a dramatic slowdown in speed of the limousine, providing a momentary opportunity to increase the chances of a successful shot. Assassination researchers have never spent much time contemplating why the assassin would not have tried to take the shot straight on out the window at the president while he was on Houston Street. Perhaps there was a concern that the front windshield would have been an impediment to the shot or that Governor Conley, sitting in the front seat and situated in front of the president, might, at that angle, have shielded the president from a direct shot. Also, 
the assassin would have been standing squarely in the window and probably would have been easier to spot by law enforcement officers or others as he made the shot from the front, directly in front of the motorcade. All they would have had to have done is simply look up. And if they did so, as he was readying himself, they might have had time to thwart the attempt. All of this is speculation on my part, of course. But absent those considerations, that shot, I think, most assuredly, would have been easier than waiting for the limousine to turn on to Elm Street. Now, if you're a conspiracy theorist who believes in crossfire, your answer to me on that question might be very simple. You would need to be patient and wait for the chance to have all the shots from all the shooters happen simultaneously. Perhaps then, if that is the case, you do wait till the president is on Elm Street where a person, say behind the grassy knoll, could also take a shot at the same time a shooter begins the shooting sequence from the sixth floor of the depository. I'm not promoting a conspiracy theory here, but the explanation of why the shot was not taken while the president was on Houston certainly would be more explainable if multiple shooters were in the mix. Regardless of the reason why the actual shooter may have made that decision to wait, the first shot was not made until after the turn onto Elm Street. At that moment, if you had been the shooter looking through the scope of a rifle aimed at the president, your view would have been almost immediately obstructed by a large live oak tree. Live oaks don't lose their leaves in Dallas at that time of the year, and this tree hadn't lost its leaves. The shelter provided by that tree for the president made it highly unlikely that a shot would be taken until after the limousine reappeared and the angle of view was past the obstruction of the tree. This meant that the president's limousine would, by definition, be farther down on Elm Street at a longer distance away from the shooter. And, in that case, imagine the simple geometry of the shot. Draw a triangle in your mind. It would be at a gentle downward trajectory angle from the sixth floor down to the car versus the steep angle that it would otherwise be if the first shot was made before the limousine passed the live oak tree. I know this is difficult unless you've seen the the surroundings, but if you had, you can envision this. As I said earlier, This is the view that the Warren Commission took when they published their report. The commission went to Dealey Plaza and made a limited recreation of the shooting sequence. By this time, the commission already had the Zapruder film in hand when they stared through that rifle scope up on the sixth floor. They knew they had to account for the obstruction of the live oak tree in their analysis, and they still had to provide enough time working backwards from the final definitive timestamp of the headshot to make time enough and to account for all of the shots that were fired. Boxed in to some extent now by this multifactorial equation, for the commission, there was really only one of two rational choices to land on related to the start of the firing sequence. Either the shooter started the shooting sequence very shortly after the limousine stopped and then made the extreme 120-degree left turn from Houston onto Elm, 
thereby combining advantages of the short distance of the shot at that point, the slowest speed of the limousine after it had just made the extreme turn and probably had not yet accelerated to 11 miles per hour, and of making the first shot before the view was obstructed by the tree. Again, at that moment, the limousine would have been very nearly under the sixth floor window. A shot at such an extreme downward angle that some would say might have a lesser probability of hitting the president. Still, it would have been early on in the open area on Elm Street. They could still take multiple shots, but would have to wait for the limo to clear the tree before the second shot was taken. Was there a worry that a shot taken too early after the turn would be detected, and if the limousine got wind of it and sped away at a higher rate of speed, then any crossfire planned from the grassy knoll or elsewhere would also be more difficult to successfully carry out? Of course, the only other alternative theory now that made sense is that the shooter passed on that first opportunity at the extreme angle, then waited for the limousine to proceed far enough down Elm Street, and as the limousine reappeared, clear of the live oak tree, and now with a more gentle geometry of the shot, it was more in the shooter's favor as he attempted to hit a moving target. Okay, I'll stop again. All of that is indeed speculation, but it's reasoned speculation after 30 years of looking at information surrounding these points, and it's basically what actually happened based on the available forensics, but not with 100% certainty and not with any knowledge supporting conspiracy or not. We will never know what's true about that moment and exactly what went through the mind of the shooter that day, but the scenarios are not complex and there are only a few in this scenario that are likely, which is why I went through them with you. Okay, back to the film. By frame 226, the president is now emerging beyond the cloak of the highway sign, and he's clearly in distress by this time with both his left and his right hands covering the area of his throat where you might find your Adam's apple. Both his left and his right elbows are extended out in a certain contortion that is unforgettable if you have seen the film, and it represents the first shocking view of a man that has just taken a bullet, a bullet that entered his back and then proceeded to pass clear through his body, exiting out the area of his lower throat and nicking his tie. By frame 230, Governor Conley does not appear to have been hit yet, and at frame 232, the governor is still holding his Stetson hat. Let's pause here at this moment. This is an important point that we'll talk about a little later as it relates to the idea of whether or not a single bullet, the same bullet, penetrated Kennedy and then continued on to go clear through Governor Conley from front to back, exiting close to his right nipple. It was then said to have traveled downward, penetrating through his wrist and ending up on his thigh. To his dying day, both the governor and his wife Nellie maintained vehemently that he was shot by a separate and distinct missile that came after the shot which hit the president. The Zapruder film seems to support this. It is one of the great controversies of the single bullet theory that was devised by Warren Commission attorney Arlen Specter. That is, the fact that the governor himself and his wife were not in agreement with it and never were. 
More on that later as we separately address the so-called magic bullet. I don't want to tease you about the single bullet theory, but it was a source of great controversy inside the Warren Commission itself. And in fact, Richard Russell, a member of the Warren Commission and a powerful senator from Georgia, contemplated issuing a dissenting opinion on the entire conclusion of the Warren Commission based primarily on his non-acceptance of the single bullet theory. This clearly would have been damaging to the credibility of the Warren Commission report. And he based much of that dissent on the eyewitness testimony and statement of Governor Conley himself. It was but another example of how the Commission and its lawyers emphasized the facts that fit their narrative and ignored highly credible testimony when it was inconsistent with that narrative. This is about as blatant as you can get on that front. That's not to say that there wasn't a genuine possibility that Governor Conley and his wife were traumatized by the moment and both of them just got it wrong. But at the very least, it's an incredible level of hubris and arrogance to controvert their eyewitness experience and views on the topic. For God's sakes, Conley was the victim riding in the car itself as the shots hit him. And his wife, Nellie, who was right beside him and who was not injured, independently and strongly agrees with her husband on this fact. Richard Russell finally signed on to the issuance of the Warren Commission final report, but only after a compromise in the report's language was made. With some level of precision, the commission declared that it was not necessary for them to state that the single bullet theory was necessary in order for them to support the commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone shooter, that three shots were fired, and that Oswald himself fired all of them from the sixth floor of the school book depository. The government contended that the earliest the governor could have been hit by a separate bullet was frame 252, if it was to have occurred at all. Like all the other analysis, it comported neatly with the issue they had of fitting it into the sequence that we discussed earlier. Both forward to the final headshot and backwards to the first shot. Keeping a careful eye on the idea that this old Manlicker Carcano rifle could only fire so fast. 60 frames later, at frame 312, President Kennedy's head moves rapidly forward for just one frame. At frame 313, President Kennedy's head explodes, and frames 314 and 315 depict President Kennedy's head and body moving backward and to the left. This head movement is important, and unfortunately, the Zapruder film did not clear up where that final shot came from. Rather, it's simply magnified what was quickly becoming a major controversy related to whether there was a second shooter. In layman's terms, and simply put, when you shoot a man in the head from the front, you might expect that the force of a bullet coming at him would simply push him backward. It seems rather counterintuitive that it would work in the opposite direction. But that's what some of the forensic experts were now saying. So, what we have is a pretty simple question. If the president was shot from the school book depository, the bullet would have entered the rear of the skull and exited somewhere in the front of his head. 
Exactly the angle of entrance and exit would be based on a multiple number of factors, including the downward angle of the shot trajectory itself, and then the juxtaposition angle of the president's head as he began to list a bit after the first shot. If he was shot from somewhere in the front, perhaps from behind the picket fence, the bullet would have entered the front or right side of his head and then exited out the back. Perhaps at the angle of fire, an exit would have occurred on the left back portion of his head, as the limousine was not quite directly in front of the picket fence at that moment. I'm avoiding all the confusing medical terms for these regions of the head so that we can all try to do this over a podcast. Keep in mind that the president, if he was struck by a rifle bullet, was hit with a missile that was traveling at around 1,700 feet per second. At the exact moment of the headshot, Governor Conley recalled that it sounded like the thud of a grapefruit hitting a wall. Horrific, for sure. Any layperson watching the Zapruder film would immediately apply common sense and think that the violent movement backward of his head constituted definitive evidence that the headshot came from somewhere in the front and not from the back. If you are a conspiracy theorist, you'd like to believe that was exactly the case. Again, maybe or maybe not. As a member of the jury, you yourself really need to hear more on the forensics than just that in order to corroborate either position that you might take. This episode is already too long, so you're going to have to wait for another episode to hear more on that one. Frame 313 is gruesome. The spray of blood and brain matter is clearly to the right and to the front of the president's head so graphically portrayed in the Zapruder film. What does that indicate? Does it mean that the shot entered from the rear and created that spray of brain matter upon exit in the front right side of his head? Or does it mean exactly the opposite? This is where the forensics get even more complex. Generally, common ammunition used in a bolt-action rifle would suggest that the exit wound would be larger than the entry wound. A typical explosion occurs on the exit as the massive pressure and movement at 1700 needs to find an exit. That supports the idea that the headshot was from the rear, and the spray created by the shot that is clearly visible in the Zabruder film, 313, supports that theory. But the type of ammunition does make a difference. For instance, and this is just but one example, if a full metal jacket bullet was used in the rifle, That's the kind of ammunition that is used in warfare. The result might support the idea that the entrance and exit wounds could hypothetically be similar. That makes it tougher to simply conclude that the spray of blood and brain matter was upon exit. We'll hear more about the nature of the bullet fragments in the next episode, and that certainly plays into what type of ammunition was used. The forensics of Kennedy's brain and body are the other leg of the forensic stool that would have helped solidify the origin of the shots. This is such a complicated subject, the autopsy that is, and how it could have tied everything together. We are going to leave that for another episode. But the bottom line is that at the time of the Warren Commission, for some reasons that we do know about, and possibly for some reasons that we don't, The autopsy was not conducted optimally. Clearly, that is being kind in some respects, but I assure you we are going to get into the details of that. 
Whether there was a shot that came from the grassy knoll or not is beyond the scope of this episode as well. But I promise, if you keep listening to more episodes, we are going to spend some time with all of that and all of these topics that are coming today out of our discussion. Of course, the existence of a second shooter virtually confirms the conspiracy. So if there was one, well, that's why tying this all together is so important. What happened after frame Z313 is the tragic ending to this 26-second film. President Kennedy leaned to the left side of the car and basically began to collapse toward Mrs. Kennedy. The horror of what had just happened was beginning to activate the senses of Secret Service agent Clint Hill. Hill was assigned the security detail for Mrs. Kennedy, and he made a mad dash from the follow-up car. And as the limousine made a slight reduction in speed, as part of the reaction by Robert Greer, the limousine driver from the Secret Service, well, it allowed Agent Hill to get a toehold on the rear bumper. He struggled momentarily, but then thrust himself up onto the trunk, just as Mrs. Kennedy, in a moment of sheer horror, climbed up and out of her seat and onto the back of the truck, ostensibly to gather a piece of the president's brain that she had seen fly toward the rear of the limousine. Obviously, a reaction born of total momentary shock. Clint Hill finally got traction on top of the trunk as the limousine now accelerated, and Greer realized it was under attack and began his frantic drive toward Parkland Hospital some four miles away. Agent Hill then envelopes Mrs. Kennedy and nudges her back into the back seat, shielding her from the risk of another shot. It was already too late for the president. Agent Hill, who is still living today, and about 90 years old, would spend a lifetime wondering, wondering whether or not if he had reacted a bit quicker or if the limousines had been a bit closer together, then could he have sprinted toward the president's limousine and gotten there in time to shield him from that final fatal headshot? It's one of those what-if questions that any one of us would fear. It would play in his head and punish a good man in so many ways like so many others that were punished in the aftermath of this horrible and historical event. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.